Hey church, thank you so much for tuning in. I am so excited about the message you are about to hear. More than six months ago, God began stirring my heart to really decide if I believe that there is more to his word than what can be explained through the natural. I believe that the evidence of God's supernatural hand can be traced using science and other natural means. Those methods lead us to a place where we discover that there are things happening around us that we cannot explain. This isn't a new idea. In fact, the scriptures spend a lot of time giving us insight into this unseen realm. This realm is a place not bound by our natural rules, not unlike the upside down we see in Stranger Things. The good news is this, when the impossible hits, we serve the God of the impossible. He moves in ways we do not understand, in ways that we do not see, in ways that we cannot understand. God is at work in the upside down. I pray that this week's message will encourage and challenge you as we discover what's in the upside down. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Welcome to our first week in our series, What's in the Upside Down? Anybody ever seen Stranger Things, right? It's a clear play off of that. The idea is that there is something happening in the spiritual realm uh, that we sometimes are not just unaware of, but I think sometimes as believers, we just ignore it. And because of that, it greatly impacts our faith and the way that we walk out our uh, relationship with Christ. And so today is meant to be a little bit of an introduction, uh, as well as hopefully to kind of uh, challenge the way that maybe you even approach Scripture when it comes to the unknown, the unseen, those things that are taking place in the upside down. So uh, specifically, we are looking at the unseen realm. This is an area uh, that the scripture talks about. Uh, we find these conversations taking place from Genesis to Revelation. One of the beautiful things about the Word of God is its consistency between books and authors, right? There's a tremendous amount of consistency that we find from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And there is consistency in language and thought. And a lot of what we find as part of that consistency is this uh, uh, interaction that is taking place between believers, non-believers, and a spiritual world around us. Okay, and, and we, we as, 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 as humanity, we're enthralled with this idea. This is not something that's like, eh, we don't really care about. When it comes to our relationship with Christ, our walk with Christ in the church, sometimes I think we just kind of, kind of, kind of like uh, become lukewarm to the idea. But as a culture, we are definitely not lukewarm. You can see it inside of all different types of, uh, my, my clicker's not working here, uh, inside of all different types of, of, uh, uh, of media, whether it's the Avengers, right? Uh, even inside of these superhero movies, they're beginning to deal with more and more magic, more and more of what's happening in the other realm. In fact, right, we get to the end of Endgame, and it's really not the end because everyone who was dead was actually able to be brought back, right? Same type of thing happening in Justice League, moving from Marvel to DC, right? Star Wars, I mean, spoiler alert, somebody wasn't dead. Everybody thought they were dead, but they weren't dead. I don't know how you feel about about that. I have my own emotions. I could preach on that for an hour, right? Okay. We jump into Harry Potter, right? And what happens? There's a whole realm. There's an undead. You thought the person was dead, but they weren't dead. We could create an entire book series on how things come back to life, right? But then when we come 
to Christianity, the world wants to real quick talk about how this is, this is not a possibility. There isn't anything after death. And yet we are what? We are completely enthralled with this. We are always fascinated with it, right? We have vampires. We have zombies. We have culture's obsession with what we just don't know and what we can't understand. Now, I will tell you that there are three views uh, that make this idea of looking at Scripture uh, in this context or in this light very difficult for us. So uh, before I even get into any Scripture, I want to just address some of these views real, real, real briefly, and I hope that the way that I do this will make sense for you. Uh, the first one is our view of personal salvation. And, and I guess I should say that this is really a Western uh, problem. These are difficulties for us in the States when it comes to our perspective of faith, right? And, and so personal salvation. I have been guilty of this. The church is guilty of this uh, as a whole, I think, in, in the States. And that is that we present the opportunity for salvation to be solely built around this idea of just you and God. And the, the reality is that the scripture is, is, is one that is about bringing people into a plurality, a community, okay? And so the invitation is not that you and Jesus, that you and the Father are just exclusively going to rule and reign for eternity. That is not the invitation. The invitation is to join the other children, the other sons and daughters that have made a confession of faith, that are walking this out in their lives for eternity. And so we have, to, we have to understand that we aren't alone. We're not exclusive in this universe. While we do believe and teach that God loved each of us individually so much that if it were, if it were only for one, he would have made that sacrifice. This is true, but the reality is it's not just good news. It is a fact. It isn't just you. There are plenty of believers around the world, and this is a struggle for us, but it should shape our identity as Christians. I say this all the time, that, that if we are believers, if we are followers of Christ, we have more in common with a, with a refugee from Syria who is a Christian than we do with our neighbor who might be a, 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 a successful entrepreneur but denies Christ because they will be my brother and sister for eternity, and I will be separated from the non unbeliever. Now, my heart is burdened and heavy for the unbeliever. I want to see them come to know Jesus. But when it comes to the reality of, of where I stand today, I should always rally to the side of my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a difficult, a difficult situation for us because we tend to only think about our own personal relationship with Christ. We don't tend to look at our relationship with Christ as being one among brothers and sisters, right? Uh, another view that is difficult in this is, is our different views of eschatology, uh, how we think that the world is going to come to an end, when we think that Jesus is going to come back. Uh, we tend to, in the, in the States, uh, gravitate towards views of the end times that protect us and prevent us from any harm because we see ourselves uh, as being uh, uh, loved so much. Why would God allow us to walk through a difficult time? And so this becomes difficult when we start looking at stories within uh, the Bible that go backwards in time where we watch people who were clearly loved by the Lord but allowed to walk through very difficult seasons. And so when the, when the idea comes to a believer that you might have to walk through some very dangerous seasons in your life, some very diff there is a war waging around you. This can be difficult for us because we uh, sometimes buy into this, uh, this, this view of the, of the last days as I, I'm going to be raptured right out. I'll never see any difficulty. I'll never see any hard times. And, and, and yet, when we look at Scripture, we don't find a consistency there that God is always rescuing His children. He has a, a bigger plan. There is a, a view He has that is different than the view that we have. And then the final one, I would argue, is difficult for us, is just the idea of law, uh, what we are and aren't allowed to do as Christians. And we stand very divided on this. We have a group of people who are in the church in the States who would make the argument that, you know, uh, if you do any wrong, you're in sin and it's not okay and God's coming after you. 
And we have another group of people that are like, you can do whatever you want to do. Did you pray that prayer at camp when you were six years old? You are solid. Go have fun. It's a party for you from here on out. And, and so you get these two very far sides, and we have a difficult time coming into this place in the middle. And the place in the middle that, that should be uh, uh, where we stand is one where we understand that it's by God's grace that we are saved. We are forgiven for our sins, and yet we strive to be in right relationship with him, right? I strive to honor that relationship. It's the same right relationship I hope that I would have with my mom and dad, that my children would have with me. That is a relationship where it's like, I understand that my kids are not always going to do absolutely right all of the time, but I do have an expectation that because of the relationship, they are putting forth the effort. It becomes difficult because we become so divided, and then lines are drawn, and people stand on opposite sides of the aisle. So why, why would we do the work of trying to better understand what's happening around us? Is it not just enough to say, look, Pastor Jim, I'm saved, I'm good, I read my Bible occasionally. When it's time for the 21 days of prayer, I'll even show up to a, a one or two of the little prayer meetings. Me and God have got things figured out and it's good to go. That could be the argument that one could make, right? They could say, well, I'm a good enough Christian. Uh, if we look at Ecclesiastes chapter three, and this is one of my favorite verses, uh, right here in verse 11, it says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Uh, also, he has put eternity into man's heart. And that, that statement right there is, is so powerful that the idea of eternity, that, that something that goes beyond my physical power, control, the, the things that I can manage, there's something beyond that. That thought, that idea, that longing is built into my heart, into my essence, right? God created us and he put deep inside of us this understanding that there is more than where I am right now. But, but it's the second part of this verse that I, I want to focus in on for just a moment. It says, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, this is really an odd statement. We'll quote all the time that he has put eternity into man's heart, right? So the idea of eternity being wired into us, this is something that we'll talk about. But, but the writer here uh, goes on and says that the reason, or, or, or even though this has happened, is so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So why would God put eternity in our heart and not put all of the answers there? right? I think a lot of times uh, people think, well, I've got enough of the answers. I'm good to go. And we come to a passage like this, and it says eternity has been put into you. And even though it's, it's there, you, you aren't going to have the answers of what? To find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And the reason for this right? The reason for this is because God wants that, that, that longing in you to draw you to him so that we will seek after him for the answers. Now, I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in church. Uh, uh, I went to church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That was the flow of things. I, I got saved very young, pre-small groups, okay? So we didn't do community groups. We didn't break out during the week and gather in people's homes. It just wasn't the, the, the popular thing in church culture. Uh, instead, on Wednesday nights, I did Royal Rangers. Anybody go through Royal Rangers in the house? Missionettes for my sister and the other sisters in the house. There's like three of you. That's okay. Or, or you're just not brave enough to admit it. Uh, and so, we, we, you know, we did these things. We went to church. And then when I became old enough to go into the youth group, uh, we had a youth service. And and I've said this before, man, we would have these uh, hellfire and brimstone messages on Wednesday night. They were built around the idea that you could die in a terrible car accident. It could catch on fire. Everyone could burn. I mean, just details like right given to you. If that were you and you died tonight leaving from here, would you go to heaven or hell? Well, every single week I was terrified I was going to hell because then we got a description of what hell looked like. And so I would want to repent, right? 
And, and then we had our, our camps. Anybody ever gone to a church camp before? A few people, right? So, so we had our, our camps, and our camps, they worked like clockwork, right? You had a summer retreat, and that was where you went, and you got together with other uh, uh, youth groups, potentially. And, uh, you know, the first night of youth camp during the summer was about getting to know everybody. Uh, and, and then, you know, you know, a little bit of stubbornness. It's like, look, I'm here. My mom and dad made me come, or this was just a way to get out of the house, or this is the only thing I got to do for the entire Entire summer. That's how it was for me. It was like the only fun thing I got to do was go to the youth camp. Uh, my mom and dad both worked, and so I sat at home uh, the rest of the time. So for me, that's what it was like. And so I really didn't come expecting God to do anything on the first night, right? But by the second night, all of a sudden, like I've been around enough Jesus people and enough influence that that worship begins. And instead of uh, ha- having kind of you know that kind of like uh, mentality of like I'm all closed up and I, I'm not engaging, all of a sudden everybody's kind of engaging. And by the end of it, man, I'm crying and weeping and I'm wanting my life to be perfect from here on out. And I came back and then the church allowed me on Sunday, along with all the other people that were weeping and crying to get up and talk about what God had done, right? We had a little testifying. Anybody ever been in a testifying service? And so we'd get up and we'd talk about what God did and who we were going to be and what it was going to look like. And, And then we walked that out for some a couple of days, some a couple of weeks, some a couple of months, but then eventually, right, it was that, that spiritual high. I like to call it Camp God. Camp God kind of began to kind of fade away, and I was back in the real world. School was starting back. People were partying. People who were supposed to be Christians were not living like Christ followers, and all of a sudden, we began to be in the struggle of life, and most of my peers would just kind of give up and they would stop attending church and they would in fact i had a a a a a friend of mine and my wife's carmen we were in the same youth group uh who who actually he he was reading through this scripture and and it said that you know god would rather you be uh, hot or cold but because you're lukewarm i'll spew you from my mouth reading it out of context not understanding what it was saying he he thought that it meant that god would rather you be on fire for him or running like hell and he decided that since he couldn't be on fire he would run like hell and he told all of us this right and it was just like this terrifying thought that he had come to this conclusion and 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 he made this statement and and two weeks later uh he was hit by a bus and we were all standing there at his funeral right like like people asking these questions like well where is he like what happened and 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 listen i'm not here to to mess with your theology on what happens based on you know a person a person's uh uh you know, decisions uh, two weeks later. But here's what I do want to tell you is that a lot of times when these things happen, people give up on God. When, when they begin to think about law and they begin to think about how I keep failing, I'm never going to be good enough. And they make that decision to not have anything to do with God. Where do they go? They begin to, to, to look to, to other sources for the answer. And I, I would make the argument that media becomes our scholar. And so because we don't really turn to God like we're supposed to, Ecclesiastes 3.11 there, right? Saying like he's put eternity in our heart, but he hasn't given us the answers because the hope is that we'll keep coming to him for the answers. But because we keep falling short, because again of this broken idea around the law, we turn around and we just start looking anywhere we can for answers. And we start saying things like, well, I'm trying all the different religions out there to see what I believe. Or I just have decided there is no God. It's easier. It's less complicated. I'll just listen to what the media is telling me. I'll just listen. And when I say the media, listen, I'm not like, this isn't like making a slam on just news organizations. I'm talking about organizations that are not concerned with the souls of people, right? So whether this is a a, a company that's making a movie, a TV show, putting out news, whether it is an author who is writing a book, right? And, and, and so this, this spans time. There have always been people who have called themselves philosophers, deep thinkers. They have been the people who have said, you know, politicians. They have been the ones that have said that they want to help others. And if they are not connected to Jesus, if they are not aware of what's happening, then the things that they're sharing are broken and wrong. And the question is, is like, what's the, where's your influence? Do you turn to the scriptures for understanding or do you turn to the world around you? We're fascinated with it. There's no doubt there's lots of money to be made when it comes to the spiritual world, but where are we turning for answers? 
And see, what the law is supposed to do, and this is what Jesus kind of talks about uh, extensively during his time here on earth uh, before the crucifixion, is that the law was just to prove you couldn't do it and that you need a Savior. And if we can really just simplify it down to that, then what, what should happen is that every time I fail, I turn to God and say, God, I need you. Like, I'm not making it. I keep making mistakes. I'm thankful for your grace, but I want to be faithful. Help me to overcome these things. So let's take a look at, at, at some scriptures here. Ephesians chapter 6, this is probably our anchor verse for the series, beginning in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, I need a couple of volunteers. Anybody willing to come up here and help me for just a moment? Jessica? Kevin, you want to come? I saw it. Come on, Kevin. You got this. Mary, Mary, you come on. No, I need Kevin. Come on. Come on. How many of you guys know uh, Kevin and Jessica are, uh, Kevin got a big promotion and, uh, you know, just a couple weeks, they're going to be moving to Jacksonville and we're going to be missing these guys. Uh, is that right? Just a couple more weeks? February 3rd. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to miss them. Uh, all right, so here, here's what I want to do is, um, uh, Kevin, you're going to be my, uh, my, my uh, influencer, my destroyer. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So got to muscle it up. Okay. You ready for this? Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so Jessica, you're just going to stand over here for just a second. And uh, you are aware of the fact that uh, he wants to stop you. Okay. And uh, I just am trying to help you get this illustration that uh, she wants to get to marry. And since she is your wife, this is why this works for you to be up here. Uh, your job is to uh, prevent her from getting to marry. All right, you ready? And Mary, you're just completely oblivious. All right, so you're just kind of staring off. So Jessica, it doesn't have to be like parkour. It's just, it's just to help people see that when there is resistance, that things are different than when there's not resistance. So, so, so there you go, there you go, there you go. All right, you get it? <laughs> He's, see, he's even got the roar down. All right, okay, okay. Now, now, you come over here, and uh, Mary is just completely unaware of what's going on, and she's unaware that Jessica wants to get to her, and she really doesn't care about getting to Jessica. And so as she's just sitting here, uh, completely oblivious to Kevin. Uh, Kevin, there's nothing for you to do, is there? No. Right? Because Mary's not actually putting forth any effort. It's, it's at the point that she starts putting forth effort that if you were trying to create resistance, you would create resistance. But Mary, you're just kind of, you're just here and doing your thing, right? Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Okay. So this is what Paul's kind of diving into for us, okay? Paul is saying that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. So it's not something that you see, but there is a war that is waging. There is a war that is taking place around you and you can be oblivious to it, right? You can sit here and you can ignore it and pretend like it's not happening, okay? And then the resistance is what it is. Or Paul begins with this, and he kind of steps into this idea that it's time to armor up. That if there is a, 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 a person that is resisting, if there is an enemy that is coming against you, you need to be prepared for that. Now, now we get this in a physical way, right? Because when, when our police go out on patrol, right, as the enemy's tactics change, so does the armor that those people who are set out to protect change, right? To where now they wear bulletproof vests, they have weapons that allow them to shoot somebody or to immobilize somebody. Now they're having cameras on them to be able to record what's happening because again, resistance can be, well, that's not really what happened and my voice needs to be heard. And so now there has to be some, some evidence for what's taking place. Not to mention that sometimes those that are in armor are the enemy and they are ones that are creating the resistance. And we can be oblivious and we can sit here and just pretend like all is good, right? And then the enemy will have rule and reign over us or we can 
engage in the conflict, right? So what exactly do we need to armor, put on armor for, right? What do we need it for? The scripture does a really great job at helping us understand what it is that we need armor for. But when we go to scripture, we have to look at scripture within its own context. And I want to remind you of this, that the Bible is written for me, but not to me. The Bible was written for me, but not to me. When it was written, it was written by a group of individuals over a series uh, of uh, spanning of, of, of thousands of years where individuals were writing based on their understanding and the context of the world that they lived in. And here's the beauty of it is that we are intelligent enough and we have enough information around us to be able to look back and identify the context in which so much of this was written. So, I want to look at a couple of scriptures that I think really can challenge the way that we look at the Bible. And I want to preface and say this, that over the course of this series, I am personally not trying to impress you with my uh, language or the things that I'm bringing. I am not, in fact, bringing to you ideas that are my own. Okay, they are things that I accept. They are ways that I look at scripture, but they are they are ideas that have come from scholars, people with degrees uh, uh, in, in Hebrew linguistics, uh, biblical archaeology. These are things that are are put together by people that have had their papers peer reviewed. I am a communicator, right? My, my job as a shepherd is not to be the one that invents and pulls all of this together. There's five-fold ministry that exists. I am a shepherd. I am a pastor. I love you guys. I want to teach the Word of God to you guys. I want to present it in a way that challenges you, but I am not the one that's laboring over looking through the, the tablets that are written in the Hebrew, written in the Greek, okay? I'm studying what the scholars have put together and presenting this to you today. Okay, so we're going to begin by looking at Psalm 82, all right? And we're going to be reading out of the ESV, which is what we read out of here. And there's a number of reasons for why we do that. We're going to be in the ESV, Psalm 82, beginning in verse 1. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. So look at the way that this verse is translated for us, okay? Okay. And think about the way that we as Christians right here in Savannah, Georgia, that we view God and the way that we view Jesus. And then we see a text like this, and, and it says that God has taken his place in the divine council. So, so what is the divine council? In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, we're taught that there is only one God, that there are no other gods, right? We're taught that God came in the flesh. His name was Jesus, right? And so Jesus is God. And then we come to a verse like this, and when it's translated out, it begins to give us a picture of a divine council, right? So what, what is a council? A council is a group of people that are giving input on situations, right? And they're not just anybody. They are divine. That means they're ordained by God, so God has assembled this council where in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, I want to just do something for you. And a lot of times when I am putting together uh, the notes for my message, I want to fact check things that I'm being told, things that are in commentaries, books that I'm reading. Uh, and one of the ways I do that is I look at a, 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 an interlinear parallel uh, version of scripture. This gives me, in this case, the Hebrew and a breakdown of the actual English, okay? And so you'll notice, and I'm sorry for the way this looks, I actually took a screenshot and don't know how to invert the colors. So uh, you get black on white here. Uh, but you'll notice that, that one of the things that, that uh, scholars do when they actually translate scripture for us is they have to put the, the, the scripture in an order that makes sense, that flows for English language, for, for in our case, the translation of, can, can I tell you something else that's really cool that I found out? Um, so we have the translation of the scriptures in English, right? We have multiple translations. There are literally right now uh, 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 
hundreds of languages that do not yet have the entire Gospels translated into their language, but based on current software and the team that is working to help disperse these things uh, through the Bible Museum up in Washington, D.C., they believe that by the year 2030, in 10 years, every single language on the world will have a written copy of the Scriptures. That is the pace at which we are moving now. So we are 10 years away from the Gospels being capable of being presented to the entire world. Now, we still need people to go and take the Scriptures, but it will be there in their language. Pretty amazing, okay? So looking at it here in the English, so this, this Scripture, right, it reads, the gods among of the divine in the congregation. So you get the idea. It's broken up. Okay, but I want to look specifically at the actual Hebrew that is used here. When we look at the gods, right, the judgment among the gods, we see this word up here, Elohim, right? That's the word that describes the gods. And then we come over here and takes his stand, God. So God being the one in the council that is among the divine council, bringing the judgment. What is the word used to name God? It is the word Elohim. So the exact same Hebrew word, when the writers are writing this out, they use the exact same word to describe God as we know him and how the scholars fairly translated this as being God's. Now, a lot of times in church, Things like this are complicated. Pastors can be guilty of skipping over them, moving past it, not talking about it. We can be guilty in our own reading plans of reading stuff like this and just going, oh, I don't really understand that. It's got to mean something else. I, I, somebody smarter than me understands it. And we don't, uh, we don't attempt to try to understand it. So I want to walk us through what a verse like this could look like when we're talking about Elohim, when we're talking about God or gods, right? Okay, so look here. Uh, I'll also point out that right here, it says it takes his stand. This verb right, I mean, this word right here, uh, nisab, is a, a, my understanding is that it is a, a, a word that um, conveys singularity instead of plurality. And so that is why the uh, translators would put capital G for God, because the idea is that among the one Elohim versus the other Elohims. So there is a, there is a, a differential that exists here to help us understand there is a difference in the Elohims, okay? But it does not negate the fact that there are other Elohims based on what the Holy Spirit is prompting the writers here in the book of Psalms to communicate. And look at what God as we understand him proper, says to the other gods, beginning in verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Salah? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked they have their knowledge, nor they have neither uh, knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so among the divine council, the writer here says that God speaks to other Elohims and says you've been given the responsibility to bring judgment and you do it unjustly and though you are sons of God, plural, you will be judged to fall just like men, right? Now you would say, well, this is kind of an odd thing, Psalm 82, why does it matter? Well, specifically I chose this one because in John chapter 10, Jesus is sitting here and he is talking with a group of the religious and he quotes Psalm 82. And he quotes it because he wants them to understand that your own scriptures talk about the fact that there is a heavenly divine authority. And you have a religious group that's wanting to deny this idea. And Jesus quotes it and says that I am one of these. 
Because they're saying, well, how can there be any other Elohim? And he says, your own scripture says there are multiple Elohims. So I could qualify, right? So I know that the question that comes to your mind, if you're really tracking with me right now, is Pastor Jim trying to present the idea of a pantheon, that there are all of these different gods that are out there? I am not. What I'm challenging is not the singularity of the one true God, but what I am challenging for you is how we define words in Scripture and why it matters. Follow with me. I'll continue. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly, in the assembly, again, this council of the holy ones. And so uh, there's this understanding that there is a, a council of other people, of, of Elohims that are speaking into or speaking to God as we understand him proper. Verse 6. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Now, I left this in here. I normally delete these little uh, links when I'm putting my scriptures together. Uh, if you're looking at a, the scripture in the YouVersion app, or if you're looking at it online, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, any of these places for your reading plans, you'll see little marks like this. And if you click on those, it will take you to uh, some footnotes that when the translators were putting together the, the, the translation, they thought, you know what, there is some, maybe there's some debate around how this translates, or maybe there, it, this requires a, a broader explanation than just simply these words. And I, I wanted to point to this one here for you because, and this is using Bible Gateway, uh, but when you click on that B, it pulls up these footnotes and it says, he, in the Hebrew, the sons of God or the sons of might. And so even here within our own translations that we look at today where there's already this idea of how do we wrestle with communicating who, who God is to the, to the Christians, they still in fairness come and say that this actually translates in this to, to have something to do with the sons of God, right? So more examples of this, and I don't have time to go through all of them today. Uh, uh, here are a handful, and these notes will be available when the sermon uploads to YouTube and Facebook. There will be a link in the description where you can track directly to these notes. Psalm 86, 8, 95, 3, 96, 4, 97, 7, 136, 2. Let's look over at Daniel chapter 7. I do have some more I want to cover. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And so this is a, a picture of what the throne room looks like. Daniel is seeing here, verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. Here's that idea of a council again. The court sat in judgment and the books were open, right? The, so, so we have this picture of this court, right? They sit here before him and, 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 and then it makes this reference here and the books were opened. And just as a, as a good picture for us, uh, we know that God is all-knowing, right? And part of what tears the, the, the Christian church apart today is the idea on uh, God's foreknowledge and how it impacts our own free will, right? So if God knows where everybody's going to go, heaven, hell, what eternity is going to look like, then does that mean that he chose where we went or that free will allowed us to get there and he just happens to know? Like, like these are complicated things that we kind of, inside of the church, as, as we move from that kind of milk phase of the gospels into some meat, into this place where we're really understanding what's happening around us, we begin to ask these questions. So why is it that these things are being written in books. And we find this throughout scripture. Most scholars argue that it's because it is allowing us to understand that every detail is known. That every detail is known. That every single detail of your life 
is being transcribed into a book. And so when the scriptures talk about being held accountable, right, for every stray word that comes through your lips, when God forgives you, yes, God forgives you, right? It is removed from you. But the recording of it, the thing that lasts forever, that knowledge of the decisions that you made, they're written in a book. That helps us to understand that every detail is being paid attention to. Why? Because every detail matters. As a believer, as a follower of Christ, every decision we make, it, it has ramifications. It might not be a heaven and hell ramification for you, but can I tell you something? It could be a heaven and hell ramification for somebody else. You might have a relationship with God, but in your own stubbornness and your own stupidity, you make decisions that cause others to say, I want nothing to do with that God. So the decisions that you make, they, they have ramifications, right? So the problem that breaks down for us here is that we have this Western view of Elohim. When we talk about God, we immediately, as soon as the word God is mentioned, we immediately assign attributes, all-knowing, all-present, like God is everywhere, he's all-powerful, he's unstoppable, and that, that, uh, that, that being assigned to this word God in Scripture is not something that the biblical writers held to. They did not hear the word God and immediately go, well, there's only one God and there is, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. And so when they are writing and using the word Elohim, which translates into God for us, they have a very different perspective. So I want to cover some of how they viewed it, how they used the word Elohim in Scripture. In Psalm 82, there in verse 1, he is the God of Israel. So Elohim is used there as God of Israel. It is also used to speak about a council, a, those members of the council in verses 1 and 6 of chapter 82. In 1 Kings 11:33, the word Elohim speaks to the gods, plural of the nations. So there are some types, and we'll be talking about this in the weeks to come, some type of rulers right, that are in this heavenly realm, that are Elohim, that are given authority over nations, the Shadim of the nations. Uh, this word Shadim is a word that uh, communicates being demonic, and so even the demonic forces are, are used to, com are used, are communicated to us using this terminology of Elohim, this terminology of God. Let's look here at Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, no Elohim, to Elohim they had never known. So they, they, they made these sacrifices to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so the writer here says that there is just a plethora of ways that they make sacrifices. Sometimes they'll claim something as an Elohim, then it's not. Sometimes they will make a sacrifice to an old Elohim that has been said, Don't, this is a false God, do not do this. And then sometimes they just grab a hold of a new spiritual being, a new Elohim that has shown up and they begin to worship and make sacrifices to it. In 1 Samuel 28, 13, it's used to reference the disembodied human dead. Uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, so this word Elohim is for them describing a member of the disembodied spiritual world. So when the word Elohim is used, when you see God used inside of your translation, it is not something to be afraid of and immediately go, well, this is a bad, bad translation. It can't mean God. It can't mean gods. It absolutely does mean gods. And when God speaks, he refers to these beings as his sons. They are his creation. Now, here is the truth for us that Yahweh is an Elohim, but not all Elohim, Elohim are Yahweh. There is only one Yahweh. And so when we look at Scripture, the reason that it's written the way that it's written is that they saw the name Yahweh as being so special and so holy that it was not spoken and rarely written. You see, out of, out of consideration... For the God among all gods, the king among all kings, it was more sacred for them 
to use the word Elohim than it was for them to sit and write out his name. Only in special occasions. Now, this is what I'm saying. Written to them for us. And we can have the understanding. We can have the, the ability to look through Scripture and see that when these things were written, this is the context in which they were written. So just a couple of questions that might come out of this when we're talking about this unseen realm, this upside down. Why does God need a counsel? Daniel chapter 4 Beginning in verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, right? So this word, the watchers, uh, is a, another uh, uh, form of what we see with the council, right? And it says, so the sentence is by the decree of the watchers. And just a little bit of a, of a backup for you. Uh, there is a judgment that has been handed down to King Nebuchadnezzar for sin in his life. And that uh, has come through what is called to us as a watcher. So this council, these council members are allowed to bring judgment themselves at different times is what we're seeing here in scripture. So the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over in the lowliest of men. So the watcher comes and brings a judgment to Nebuchadnezzar for what reason? So that God will be glorified, the most high God, the Elohim that is separated from all other Elohim, Yahweh as we know him. So this other Elohim from the council comes and brings this judgment. Verse 23, I'm going to jump down. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze uh, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. So the writers here, the writer here says that it came from the watcher, right? That the council made a decision, but it is the decision of God. God receives the glory. God receives the honor. So when we as Christians turn to the one true God and we give him credit for anything that happens in our lives, whether it is a divine word that shows up or whether it is a difficult situation we walk through, no matter what spiritual force was at work, God receives the glory because none of it happens without God's authority. So we, we, we rightly, we rightly Give God glory in all that we walk through, just as the scripture says. Whether it is difficult or whether it is filled with joy, we give God glory. Not that God himself brings every one of those situations. And sometimes it comes from the council, and sometimes it comes from the enemy. As we look in the book of Job, and we see that the enemy who seeks to whom he may devour, right, comes into this council and says, Job is only safe because you protect him. And God says, do as you will, right? So when the enemy comes and brings destruction to Job and I mean, devastation, who receives the glory? God receives the glory, but God isn't the one that brought the destruction. So why does God do this? Because from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we see that God, he is passionate about community. He is passionate about community. He has always been about others. It's why he created us, for relationship. And relationship, relationships are, are the very essence of community. I think the hard thing for us to come to grips with is that we aren't the only creation. And sometimes as Christians, we forget about that. But then we'll read through the scriptures and we'll, we'll see the descriptions of all of those living things in the throne room. And we won't connect the dots that God is a creator who is creating and has created more than just you and I. All right, so with this understanding of Elohim, where does that put us with Jesus? This might be a question that you ask, right? Because we've got the sons of God. And when we look at John 3, 16, the most quoted verse in all of scripture ever, 
It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it wasn't until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found that we actually had enough uh, um, uh, manuscripts to adequately translate a lot of Scripture, okay? But specifically, John 3.16. There is this word here in John 3.16, and I'm pulling back here to this interlinear uh, uh, parallel with the Hebrew. And this word right here uh, that we translate as only begotten, it is monogene, all right? When this word is found, we, do, we don't find it in this context anywhere else until the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. Now, uh, the, the New Testament is written in Greek, right? It was translated into the Latin. And I'm, I'm throwing a fire hose of information to you, but I want you to have some, some understanding. When the King James uh, Version was translated, we only had access at that time to limited portions of the New Testament in the Greek. But we had a lot of access to translations from the Greek to the Latin. And so the, the, the scholars, rightly so, listen, they did the right thing. They used the oldest transcripts they had access to, some in the Greek, some in the Latin, and they put together a very solid translation of Scripture. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we were able to find entire translations of the New Testament in Greek, the oldest in existence. So when scholars took those into account, they found a, and let me, t I want to, I want to caution you. They found some discrepancies, but I want to caution you in going, well, that makes this other translation better than the other. Less than 1% of all of Scripture differs between the King James and the ESV, which we use, or the NIV, which maybe uh, you read in your personal time. There is not some huge fallacy within these translations, okay? This is God putting the burden on man to go and make translations in the hopes that we will do the work of looking into and validating those translations, something that Christians don't tend to do. But this is a particular word that ended up being mistranslated, and this is how we discovered it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Now, it doesn't say only begotten here. It says his only son. But what's interesting is when we go to this, the, the translators found out that this word for only was the exact same word. And fairly, it translates only begotten son. Now, is Isaac, right, Abraham's only begotten son, as you and I understand only begotten? No. In fact, he's not even the firstborn son of Abraham. And so, most of your scholars today would argue that a better translation would be special, unique, one-of-a-kind, separated from the others. There was something spectacularly different about this son. See, it doesn't diminish Jesus. It doesn't diminish him being God in the flesh. What it does is it allows us to go through Scripture and read it exactly as it was written instead of anchoring into some type of conception that makes us go backwards and go, well, this can't mean this, and this can't mean that, and there's got to be an error inside of this. Instead, it absolutely means that God has other creations that he refers to as sons. I'm a son. Many of you in this room are son. sons. Some of you are daughters. But can I tell you that as a son of God, I fully understand that Jesus was different than I am. It doesn't diminish. For me, it helps me amplify the message. There's something so special about Jesus and it gives me a place to call home. You see, Jesus is the only Elohim that is Yahweh in the flesh. There is no other God that has shown up and been in the flesh the way that Jesus did. 
so if there are other Elohims and they are a council before him and in Psalm 82 God says that they some of them judge unfairly then then what authority has been given to them and what about angels and what about demons and what about Satan in the coming weeks, I'm going to show you where inside of Scripture, there wasn't just one big fall where uh, Satan led an, uh, an army of, of, uh, of angels down to the earth and they fell out, but there were multiple mutinies. And that the word Lucifer isn't even a name given to Satan as we know him inside of Scripture. We're going to talk about the fact that Scripture says that angels, as messengers of the Lord today, will one day be subjected to His children, the church, for eternity. Paul says, do you not know that you'll rule over them one day? Can I tell you not the half has been told? And that the idea of streets of gold and mansions, that's nothing? compared to what eternity is going to look like and that the story of eternity is unfolding right here, right now among us and that there is an enemy waging war and Paul says that you need to understand that and begin to put on the armor because it's the armor that will protect you. It is the sword that you will use to defend and protect What's that sword? It's the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. Let's stand to our feet as we close. In 2017, 215,000,000 Christians reported persecution of their faith. 2018, 245 million reported persecution of their faith. More people have been persecuted for their Christian faith in the last 100 years than in the 2,000 years combined of its existence. See, Jesus said that as the gospel spreads to all nations, this will be a marker of my return. And there is a major resistance taking place by the enemy to prevent Christians from doing that which we were created to do. Be his sons and daughters and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Listen, do we not even struggle with sharing our faith on a daily basis? Where will those come from that will rise up and go into the most dangerous places? I'm sure that you have seen in the news that a leader in Iran was executed via a drone strike the other day. And as anything political in our nation, it has people divided standing not on opposite sides of a line, but on opposite sides of a canyon. The picture that we're given is one of people in the streets of Iran screaming, death to America. Death to the Jews. It's really interesting. I was reading a number of posts that have been put out by Iranian Christians that I follow who have said there are over 80 million people in the nation. The protests that you see that are being pushed in front of you of people screaming this number at most a thousand at a time by the tens of millions right now. Christians all over Iran are celebrating the fact that maybe we're one step closer to being able to worship Jesus the way that you do in America. I'm not justifying what happened. What I'm telling you is, is that we don't know what's going on in other parts of the world. We also don't understand what persecution looks like. We don't understand what it looks like 
to live in a nation under rule that says, talk about Jesus, go to jail. Talk about Jesus, die. Talk about Jesus, we'll hang you, we'll burn you with acid. You'll live the way we tell you to live. People need Jesus. We need to understand that there is a war waging around us and not be complicit. Let's bow our heads as we close this morning. If you're in this place and you would say, you know what, Pastor Jim, I'm here today and I am not living for this Jesus. I have not made a decision to be a follower. I have not made a decision to declare my life and my, 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 my daily actions to him. Sure, I come to church. Sure, I do these things. But man, I'm just not concerned with what's happening around me. But today, I really do. This is stirring my heart. I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I don't want to leave this place without giving you a chance to respond. Heads bowed, eyes closed out of respect for others. But if you're in here today and that's you, and you just simply raise your hand, I just want to be in agreement with you today. Scripture says that if we believe with our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's the first step. So if you want to know Jesus is Lord of your life today, right now, if you'll just hold your hand. Thank you so much for joining us online. We hope you are impacted by the Word of God you heard today. We consider resources like this to be supplemental and not a replacement for community. So if you don't have a home church, we'd love to invite you to check out City Church. But most importantly, find a church where you can be engaged in community. We want to help you navigate your next steps if you made a decision for Christ today or simply need prayer. If you want more information about our church, visit us online at citychurch.life. If you didn't get a chance to give online during service and would like to contribute financially, you can go to citychurch.life forward slash give. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you at church.